Thank you for choosing to listen to this message. At Coastal, we believe in changing and enriching lives through the power of the Word. We pray that this message would be a blessing to you. Well, it's an uh, honor to be here with you today. And I just want to say a quick thing, you know, with like Mitch. I just want to honor you and going out in the field, giving your life like doing everything you can to advance the gospel. And I just think it's super important when someone raises their hand and says, Jesus, I will go, I will be the person, send me, that we get behind that and that we support that and that we support the people that are like, hey, Lord, I don't know what it's going to look like. You know, could be awesome, could be not so awesome, but I'm going to do it. And uh, if we can get behind that, it's amazing. Also, quick update. Uh, I don't know if you were here last month. I think it was a month ago. There was a guy, he's like kind of a friend, you know, not really a friend. <laughs> he's kind of a friend, Ben, if you're watching. Um, so my friend Ben, the military Ben, remember Ben? He's like super animated guy. Well, I'm not going to be as animated because that's Ben's deal. But they, uh, their ministry, Engage Your Destiny, which, you know, ministers to our men and women of uniform, are releasing a podcast next week. Wow. And so for those of you who are military, have family or military or veteran, uh, you know, check that out, Engage Your Destiny podcast on Apple, Spotify, kind of all the podcasting. It's a great resource uh, for our men and women of uniform that you can kind of send and encourage yourself or family members. Well, this is my second sermon here, so I think, uh, I think I'm on a sermon-to-sermon lease is what that means. So um, if you don't know me yet, my name's Nate of Nate and Whitney. There's my lovely bride. And we have been coming to Coastal since last fall when we moved down from Minneapolis last summer. But I've got a task ahead of me. See, last week, there was a legend that preached. His name's Barry. He's right back there in the denim jacket. And, uh, you know, how do you follow up a Hall of Famer, right? But Barry, I, you're an inspiration to me. Uh, I pray I have your zeal for life when, Lord willing, I am 80 as well. I want to pray real quick. Jesus, thank you for this opportunity. <clears throat> thank you that, uh, that we can live in a country that we can meet freely, that we can preach your word, that we can learn about you uh, without fear. And Father, I pray that you calm our hearts and minds uh, right now to, to hear your word, that the, the cares of the world, what we're going to do for lunch, what we're going to do this, as we start the week or get back into the work week. We'll just take a pause and take a hiatus uh, for this moment and that we, we ask your Holy Spirit to, to be here. God, would the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be pleasing to you? Uh, would you use me to, to speak your truth, God, and that um, your Holy Spirit would, would grow us more and more into Christ? Amen. I want to ask you a question this morning. All right, here we go, right? Getting ready. Have you ever been in a situation where someone has made a decision about your life that you were unaware of? I want to tell you about a story in my life. See, coming out of college, I went to the University of Minnesota, went to business school, and I was like, business, 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 right? You know, that's when it was like super cool, still is super trendy to be like this entrepreneur, right? When it's like everyone's an entrepreneur, <laughs> it's like, well, you're self-employed. <laughs> like, that's me, right? Still self-employed. And... 
I, I wanted to learn about business from this, uh, you know, from anyone really, but I found myself uh, meeting with a group of seasoned entrepreneurs, guys who like started businesses, sold businesses. They got together and poured their money together to create this little investment firm to launch a company called Cafe Inc. And Cafe Inc. was actually the world's, or the, it's the nation's, but I believe the world's, uh, first private co-working facility. It's like a Regis mixed with a full-service public cafe in the same building in a retail location. And we were actually in real estate magazines, we were on the news, we were on TV, and things were going well. And we ended up bringing in another investment uh, group, and they you know, came in and brought in some more cash. And like, when you're in startup world, you're like, hey, cool, like more investors, this is awesome. Like, more funding, more locations, more, 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 right? And I remember sitting down with the VP of operations, whose nickname was Mr. Sir. And <laughs> I remember talking to him about everything we're doing from marketing technology and how we went you know, from like scratch to where we are now. And towards the end of the meeting, though, I kind of got the feeling like, I don't think this is going to go the way I think it's going to go. Like, I was going to be the guy to go like do you know, open locations and do kind of stuff. I'm like, I don't think... I don't think I'm going to be around. And sure enough, when did you know it, like a week or two later, I wasn't a part of the team anymore. And because a lot of times when new investors come and take a controlling interest in the company, you kind of bring in your people, right? And I wasn't one of their people. See, the new investors had a vision for my life that was not the vision I had for my life. And we've all probably had that experience, whether, you know, in my case, it was kind of a negative, but we've also probably had the positive, right? Where someone has a vision for your life that, you know, is maybe in the positive. And do you know that God has a vision for your life that maybe you're not aware of yet? Or God has made choices about your life that maybe you don't understand yet. I've heard it this way, the kingdom of God is like a train. I don't know if we have that photo. There it is. DB, right? So this is Germany, right? Wonderful train system in Germany, Austria, Switzerland, just by the way. Um, but the kingdom of God is like a train. And there are moments where this train of the kingdom, where you're standing on the platform, it pulls up to the platform of your life at a moment, and you, the doors open and you have the decision to step aboard or not. And once you're inside, you realize there's actually a lot more going on. Like, there's other people here, right? There's other train cars with different specialties. And we realize there's actually a conductor, and he's making decisions about this train and where it's going and how fast it's going to get there. And the reality is when we come into the kingdom of God by repenting from our ways and placing our faith in Jesus, we come under the authority of a conductor, a king, and his name is Jesus. And guess what? He has made some wonderful, tremendous decisions about your life. There are two main decisions I believe Jesus has made about your life that no matter where the train goes, that these things will always be present. They're kind of like the rails, right, of the train track. And the first one is, no matter where you go and what you do, 
God has made you a completely new creation. He's empowered you by his grace through the Holy Spirit and that you would know that you are a dearly loved son or daughter of God. So when he looks at you, he smiles and he says, that's my boy, that's my girl. You see them? He is proud to have you as a son or daughter of God. And I don't know if you've never experienced that with your earthly father, but that's how he sees you. In Romans 5, Paul writes this. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps maybe for a good person one would even dare die. But God showed his great love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A, re a real kind of quick recap, if I may. Here we go. Your life is like a glove, right? We are all born into sin. The default condition of humanity is sin deserving wrath. We try to do good works in our own strength to please God in our own righteousness, but like dirty trash rags to God, we need a new source. Jesus came to pay the penalty for our past, present, and future sins, and he rose again to indwell you with his Holy Spirit. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are born again. We are made completely new. God is not in the fixer-upper business. He's not trying to make a better you. He's trying to make a new you. He's not Chip Gaines. Although Chip does have those dimples, right? He is a re God is a redeveloper. He buries our previous life with him in baptism and raises us a completely new creation. He makes you and I into a brand new glove. It's the gauntlet from Marvel. Right? However, this glove still needs to be inhabited by a new source, right? What strength does the glove have in of itself? None. Glove, pick up the water bottle. Can't do it. However, when I put my hand into the glove, the glove becomes as strong as my hand. And when God puts his spirit in you as a new creation, your glove, which is your life, inherits the strength of God, not just once like a transaction or a deposit in your bank account, but continually, consistently, like electricity that's always on. Do we have any baseball fans in the room? I know Jason. Jason can tell you like every stat from <laughs> baseball team, right? We have, in baseball, there's a difference between a brand new glove and a seasoned, game-ready, broken-in glove, right? They're both still gloves, but they function different. They feel different. And it's easier to work with a seasoned glove. Isn't that correct? Right? It's easier to catch. It's easier you know, to move. And that's because the seasoned glove has been formed into the owner's hand, into his imprint. The indents and the breaks of the leather match the hand of the owner. And I believe the second rail of the train tracks of the kingdom of God, you could say, is that God has made a second decision for us in about your life 
is that you and I would be conformed into the image of Christ. Romans 8 says this, Paul writes, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into what? The image of his son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Paul actually echoes this mantra of formation later in his letter to Galatians. In Galatians 4, he writes, my little children, for whom I am in the anguish of childbirth, until what? Christ is formed in you. What was the focus of Paul's ministry? Was it to gather people, to sing songs, you know, to do good works, to just kind of get people to like each other and just be less mean? No, don't get me wrong. Like, those things are good and we welcome them, right? We all welcome people who are less mean. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. But that, those are the outcome of the focus, not the focus itself. The focus and goal of Paul was and will always be that you and I are formed into Christ. You can be confident, I believe, in any season of your life, whether you're thinking about going to college or you're considering how do I best serve God in my fourth quarter, that you can ask, the, when you ask the question of God, God, what do you want for my life? I believe the answer is and will always be conforming us into Christ. And as long as we have that, everything else will just fall in place. But Nate, what does that like really mean? Like sounds all kind of cool and theological. It might be like nice for like a whiteboard or something like that. Um, but what does that mean in practicality, in the real life, in the trenches? What does it mean when you come home from a horrible day and you and your spouse are just like having it at each other? We've never had that, have we, babe? Never. You've never, you've never had that, have you? Never. Or, right, you're with your kids, and they're just annoying. And you're just like, yeah, I'm about to blow it. Or kids, you're with your parents, and they're annoying, right? Like, what does it mean, though, like when tragedy strikes you or your loved ones? Well, practically, it means that Jesus has decided to enroll you in his apprenticeship program so that you and I can become like him in person and in character in everything we do. Jesus said in Luke 6.40, he said this, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Disciple's kind of like one of those words, you know, if you grow up in church long enough, you're like, what, a disciple, you know? So let's just, let's, let's hone in, let's like, what is that? A disciple is a student, a learner, an apprentice of Jesus. A disciple is someone who is with Jesus, learning to be like him in every area of our life, empowered by grace to do the things Jesus said to do without having to think about it. Let me just say that again. A disciple is a student, a learner, an apprentice of Jesus. A disciple is someone who is with Jesus, learning to be like him in every area of your life, empowered by grace to do the things Jesus said to do without having to think about it. 
Discipleship is the training process of learning from Jesus through the Holy Spirit how to live in the unforced rhythms of grace in the kingdom of God. Discipleship is where the glove is formed and molded into the fit the hand of the master. And God has called you and I to a life and mindset of discipleship, of training, of apprenticing him so that we might be conformed into his image. That's his focus. That's what he's doing. So to recap, the two rails of the train of the kingdom of God are one, that you would know that you are a new creation, brand new. The old man is dead. Behold, all, you, know, you are a new creation empowered by grace to live as the beloved son or daughter of God. And two, God is forming you into Christ through discipleship. See, salvation is not the end of our journey with Jesus. It's the beginning. Discipleship is our daily life as believers. Years ago, I was given a book called 10 Qualities That Move You From Being a Believer to a Disciple. Well, here's the problem. If you call Jesus Lord and Savior, Jesus has already called you into discipleship. If you are a believer, you are a disciple. There's not two tiers of Christianity. The question is, do you know you're a disciple? Do you have a vision for your discipleship, and are you engaged in the curriculum? I believe discipleship and the mindset of training is the missing element for many Christians. Maybe it's the missing element for you. If you're here today and you're like, I am frustrated with my spiritual walk, even though I've gone to all the conferences, I go to the worship events, I go you know, to Sunday services. If you are discontent because someone gave you a gospel that said, all you have to do is pray a little prayer and all your problems go away. I believe engaging in discipleship and adopting a mindset of training is the missing piece for you. Discipleship is the lost art that enables us to reach out from a position of strength consistently. Discipleship is God's way of training us to live in the kingdom of God, conform our lives into Christ so that we might experience the fruit of the Spirit. It's how it, discipleship is training now, my life now, for the life that I will live with him forever. You ever hear this world called it's training time for reigning time? Right? We're training now to be with him forever. Discipleship is the secret to how you and I live an indestructible life. Right? Isn't that what we all want? We want an indestructible life. Like we kind of just like don't want problems in our life. <laughs> like, that's what I tell my wife. It's like my, my, my job is just problems. Like I just deal with problems all day. <laughs> yeah, I just like Eeyore. <laughs> but, um, but we want an indestructible life. And well, discipleship is the answer to how we do that. <laughs> discipleship is how you and I find the shalom of God. And the key to discipleship is having a mindset of training. Barry talked last week about presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice and being transformed by what? The renewing of our mind. Thanks for the tea up, Barry. In my life, I have never actually met anyone who's had consistent success in any area of life who did not have a mindset of training. And I honestly mean that. If you go to like the um, 
Saturday morning, right, you go to the farmer's market and there's people who have these arts and crafts, right? They've been trained to make that. People who are excellent mothers have been trained to do that. Whether they've been trained or they trained themselves. Guys who look like Aaron and Tim <laughs> have been trained to lift some weights, right? And I honestly mean that. I have never met anyone who's excelled in any area of life consistently who's not had a mindset of training. Sure, I've met people who've got lucky once or twice, but no one who with any sort of consistent track record who did not have a mentality of training, of discipleship. So what's this outcome of being Jesus's apprentice, you could say? Well, the good news is you actually get to live life in the kingdom the way that he did. You actually get to experience the grace of God in your life just as he did. You get to be, live that indestructible life. You get to be the house that is built on the rock and not on the sand, as is all too familiar here in Flagler Beach, right? Jesus says in Matthew 7, he says this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against his house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. See, Jesus isn't being dramatic. He's not like creating some sort of like, you know, colorful language. He's simply telling us, this is how life works, guys. This is how it is. And as we celebrate this Advent season, which is a season of preparation to receive the coming king, right? I want us not to only think about eight pound, two ounce little baby Jesus in the manger, right? I want us to think about the greatest rabbi who's ever been born. This rabbi will be the Messiah. He will be the prophet that Moses spoke about. He is the heir to the throne of David. Jesus is being born into a world steeped in anticipation of prophetic fulfillment which is why Jesus said, Abraham longed to see my day. A big part of our issue is our educational system and framework here in the West. See, we tend to focus more on just simply head knowledge, right? If I, I know something if I can tell you how it works. But the Hebrew method was more holistic. It was head knowledge, yes, but it went further than that. It went beyond that. It went to knowledge from experience, and the main goal of dis education or discipleship in Jesus' day was not just knowledge attainment. The end goal was to become like the rabbi. It was full life transformation. It was being able to live your life as if the rabbi was living it for you. In Jesus' day, there were five core elements of what it meant to be a disciple. First was memorize the rabbi's teachings, which is great. Thank you guys for doing that. Now we got a Bible, right? Second, adopt his interpretation of the scriptures. 
what you see Jesus doing. He's reinterpreting the scriptures, right? The third was to mimic his lifestyle. So if your rabbi washed a bowl a certain way, you would wash it that exact same way. The fourth was to be obedient to his commands. The fifth was to commit to making disciples. So when Jesus made the invitation to follow him to the apostles and the disciples, they had this framework in mind of what that meant. And Jesus now makes that to us today. But to be a disciple, we actually have to think that Jesus has something worth to say, right? We have to believe that he has something worth listening to. We must believe that he has some sort of knowledge. So I ask you, what's, what's your view of Jesus? I think we often think of him as kind and compassionate. You know, sure, right? But have you ever thought of Jesus as smart? As articulate? As deliberate? Almost never. See, we have to give Jesus at least the same credibility that we would some Fortune 500 executive, you know, some brilliant doctor, right? We, but that's not what he's painted in our culture. I think if you had actually put Jesus's picture next to like, you know, some brilliant scientist, that we would almost be tempted to think that the scientist guy is, is, is smarter. That's just how our culture portrays it. Y'all know who Warren Buffett is, right? The Oracle of Omaha, one of the greatest investors of all time. If Warren Buffett walked through our back door right now, most of us would ask questions about what? Investment. Investment. Why? Because we believe that he knows something that we don't. We believe that he would have domain knowledge, expertise, and that he's smart when it comes to investing. Well, guess what? Jesus is smart when it comes to life, in all areas of life. There's not one thing in the universe that Jesus is not the highest expert in because he made it all. He is the designer. Colossians 1 says this, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. If we're not to be students of Jesus, who designed the universe and everything in it, like, who else do you have in mind? Like, seriously, who else is there if not Jesus? Because the reality is we, we are formed into something by someone in our life, and so who are you going to be a disciple of? Some business sage, the Kardashians, Oprah, Joe Rogan, Patrick Mahomes, Taylor Swift. Check it out. A simple inspection will show that no one can even come close to Jesus. And I believe the most important thing you can do with your life is become a disciple of Jesus. I believe the most important thing we can do as a church is to make disciples of Jesus. So how do we transition to becoming a disciple of Jesus? Well, it's actually quite simple. We just take an honest, sober assessment 
of our daily life, we count the costs and the value of following Jesus, and we choose to become disciples and enroll in his apprenticeship program. See, discipleship was the primary and is the primary vision Jesus laid out for the church. In Matthew 20, 28, it says this. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to, to him, to me. Go therefore and make attenders of church services. Go therefore and make friends with people. Go therefore and make worshipers who come to events. It doesn't say that. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Because he's a good dad, isn't he? In my work, I help establish vision for our company with our other partners. And I was actually in Arizona last week uh, at our facility, which is a golf course and event center there. See, for the longest time, the, under the old management and old, uh, old owners, the employees were just order takers. The vision was, do this, don't do that. I think we can kind of have that vision in church sometimes, right? We come in, it's like, hey, this is what it means to be a Christian. Do this, don't do that. Well, I was able to connect with our events gal out there, and one of the issues is we actually didn't have enough space for one of the facilities that wanted, or, or in our facility for one of the events that wanted to, to rent it. We actually had a 250-person Christmas party that wanted to book our, our event space, and we just didn't have enough, a big enough facility. And as I left, I cast vision and empowered our events coordinator to create a plan that we would be able to still offer groups like that that couldn't fit in our normal facility, but we could still offer them something. And I empowered her to create that, and we're going to check in on it here at the, you know, in January. So I've got a question for you. Do you think when I check in, in with her in January, I'm just going to ask her, like, how's it going? Like, how are you doing, you know, taking steps towards the vision that we just laid out? together in Arizona? Of course, right? It's like, yeah, we want to see some movement. Like, yeah, here's our vendors, here's our plan, here's how we're going to accommodate it, here's when I'm going to know how I'm going to, you know, transition from selling this facility to, you know, now selling like a tent experience. Of course I am. Jesus gave us the vision of making disciples. Do you think Jesus is going to check in with us when we meet him next? I should add that employee is actually one of our best employees, and as Morpheus said, we are freeing her mind from the bondage of past management, and she's got a tremendous opportunity to become a dynamic leader for us. And similarly, when we engage in the vision of what God has for us, we have a tremendous opportunity to experience the blessings of God. Last year in 2020, Barna Group, uh, if you've never heard of them, they're a Christian research organization, dug into this issue of discipleship and found out if you really want to 2x the enjoyment of your faith walk, you need to take the mindset of being a disciple. I don't know if we, Shannon, if we have that slide of the research here. So this is what they found. Can you make sense of that? No, it's, it's like 
four-point font. So, But here, I'm just going to focus on this top one. This top one says, my relationship with Jesus brings me deep joy and satisfaction. That was the question on the survey. This is a statistically significant survey. See that teal line that's like the furthest right? 65% of people, in, so that cohort there, that's people who said that they are in a discipleship community. See that orange bar on the bottom? 30%. That's people who identify in the cohort called not engaged in discipleship. 65% to 30%. That's 2x. Like, where, what kind of re, where, where can you get that kind of return, right? We've got some financial planners here, right? If you're going to say, like, 2x your income, it's like, 2x your faith walk. It's right there. It's for the taken. That same study from Barna Group found that actually only 1% of pastors and leaders across America said, quote, today's culture or today's churches are doing very well at discipling new and young believers. When looking at their own church, that same research found that only 8% of pastors across America said that they were, quote, doing very well in their own church. I actually met a gal after last service who came up to us and said, she's been in the church for 17 years, and she has never been discipled until she came to Coastal. 17 years. And she was at some of the biggest churches where if I said them, you would recognize their name. But she never had enough money to pay for it. Isn't that a shame? You have to pay to be a disciple of Jesus these days. I believe the reason Christians and churches who engage in discipleship get more out of their faith is because discipleship is where the grace of God meets us. I just want to come back to that real quick. I just want to honor Kim in the Bible school because it is a very affordable school. Amen. Discipleship is where the grace of God meets us. When we talk about the grace of God, we often think about unmerited favor. Right? You heard that before? Well, that's true as a noun, but that doesn't necessarily describe what grace does. What is the function of grace in a disciple's life? Well, grace is the tool that God uses to train us into Christ. See my friend Tom over here. He's got a mean snatch and deadlift, by the way. You know, in, in CrossFit, you use tools. They're called barbells and weights. God uses grace to train us. The world might use fear manipulation, even fleshly motivation to train, train us, but God uses grace. Paul says in Titus 2, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, doing what? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives when we get to heaven. It doesn't say that in this present age, Right? Grace trains us for the life we live now. So are we curiously obsessed with training by grace to become more like Jesus, or is that reserved for the special few? 
Is that reserved for the Mitches of the world who go across, you know, into foreign lands, the Pauls, the Billy Grahams, the Wesleys, the special few? Or is grace for you and I? And do we look at our life as a life with Christ where we can practice and improve, empowered by his grace, no matter what season of life we live? Or are we just simply waiting and buying our time for Jesus to just come get us out of here? I think training in righteousness is kind of like this. See, after college, I had this deep desire to learn how to drive stick shift, manual, right? Manual transmission. And if you're born after 1980, you don't know what that means, right? <laughs> so, you know, I actually remember being in Mexico with my dad, and he, he rented this Jeep, and it was a manual transmission. I'm like, Dad, you know, I'm like 14 at the time. I'm like, Dad, do you know how to drive that? And he just kind of like snickered and laughed at me. And I'm like, I, I thought we are going to get in this like huge car accident because i you know, never seen it before. But after college, I bought a manual transmission car without knowing how to drive it. I had no one to teach me. But with rugged determination, I was going to learn because it was cool, right? It just was, it was just cooler. Like, ah, I drive manual. And I was in Minnesota with the snow, just on top of that, right? Right? It's fun. When I started driving manual transmission, was everything overwhelming when I began? Absolutely, without a doubt. Was I burning my clutch and grinding gears? You bet. But guess what? Little by little, I was being formed into the image of Formula One legend Michael Schumacher. <laughs> right? And this is the point. As I got better at driving manual, as I was trained in the ways of driving, I had to think less and less about the functions of driving. I couldn't tell you how many times in rush hour in Minneapolis where you know, I'd be changing gears. I couldn't, I couldn't count how many times I had to change gears. And for those of you who, you know, drove manual, drove stick shift, you know. Like you just, it's just kind of like an extension. And that's exactly what it is for us. When we train in grace as Jesus' apprentices, we are trained to the point where doing the things that he said to do, we don't have to think about it. It just becomes a natural extension of who we are. And that's the journey of a disciple. But I think when we think about being a disciple, we often think about the cost of discipleship. And I don't want to sugarcoat it. To follow Jesus will cost you everything. But it's worth it. And we will find that it's like being able to buy a $100 million mansion for a buck. The value is outrageously good. When we think about the cost of discipleship, we, uh, we think about everything we have to give up, right? If I'm really going to follow Jesus, this means I have to give up X, Y, Z, right? And I don't know what that is for you, but I can tell you this, it's everything, and it's true. Jesus said this in Luke 14. He said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Nobel Peace Prize researcher uh, and researcher, winner and researcher Daniel Kahneman, who wrote the book Thinking Fast and Slow, found in his research that a negative in our brain has seven times 
more potent emotional experience than a positive. Seven times. Our brains and our nervous system are literally wired to focus on the negative and not the positive. See, if you're going to sit down and count the cost to build a tower, there's, there's a future value that you see to it, right? The same holds true for our lives. We tend to focus on the negative and not the positive. And when we think about the cost of discipleship, we typically don't give thoughtful consideration to the cost of non-discipleship. See, there's a cost if I do engage in discipleship, and there's a cost if I don't. Like, what's the outcome if we don't become a disciple? In my career, I've consulted with both Fortune 500 companies and entrepreneurs, and what separates them often, I think, is not just obviously the size and scope, but what they focus on. When I was selling programs into Fortune 500 companies, it was always about cost. You know, you, get, you go through the whole sell, you know, you're working with like the manager and then maybe the VP and then everything's like, yep, yep, yep. We just have to get it through the procurement team. And if you are in procurement, God bless you. But it was always about how do we get this project for the lowest cost? And when I work with entrepreneurs, they consider cost. Yes, it's absolutely part of the equation, but they're more focused on value, on growth. And I believe if we're going to give simple consideration to the cost of non-discipleship, we will easily see that the value of discipleship far outweighs the cost. So what is the cost of non-discipleship? I think we can simply use the opposite of what Jesus laid out in the Sermon on the Mount as an example, as a, as a snippet. And the opposite would mean that in your life, you are dominated and motivated by anger. That you're constantly controlled by lust. That you're quick to break oaths when convenient. That you'll manipulate your words to get what you want. That you'll hold grudges and retaliate. That you only give and do spiritual activity to be seen by people. That greed directs your work and your career and that you feel okay to judge people, belittle people, and condemn people. That you're stingy and ungenerous like Ebenezer Scrooge. That you are constantly anxious and stressed out about life. And that when people think of your life, all they think about is bitterness and pain. You have those people in your life where you're like, I don't want to touch them with a 10-foot pole, just bitter. That is but a short snippet of the outcome of non-discipleship. And that, does that really sound like a life that you want? Of course not. I don't want that life. I have tasted that life, and I know what it tastes like, and I don't want anything of it. So if that's the cost of non-discipleship, what is the benefit of being a disciple? Well, it's the opposite. You overflow with patience. You have self-control. You have the confidence to just simply let your yes be yes and your no be no and be okay with the outcome. Instead of having to manipulate your words to get what you want, you simply ask and are content. You broker peace and forgiveness, and you do the things that you do because you love God and want to serve people. Instead of being stingy and ungenerous like Ebenezer Scrooge, you bless people and have a good eye like Tiny Tim. 
instead of constantly being anxious and stressed out about life, you actually can sleep at night because you know your worth and your value and you love yourself. Instead of when people think about your life, they all they think about is bitterness, your legacy will be one of lovely fruit. I know we got some grandparents in the crowd who wants to be the grandparent where they go, man, I want to be like grandma or grandpa, right? You know how to catch a monkey? Any monkey catchers in the crowd? Well, I caught my wife, but she's not a monkey. <laughs> Just want to make that clear. Here's how you catch a monkey. You cut a hole in a gourd, and you put a piece of bait, fruit, typically, inside of it. And the monkey goes in to grab the piece of fruit, and he cannot pull his hand out of the gourd because it, 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 it creates... It's, it's too small to, to go over his fist when he has the fruit in hand. And the fact that the monkey does not let go is the very thing that seals his fate. My friends, we have to let go of our little kingdoms and become apprentices of Jesus in his kingdom. And it doesn't matter if you're eight years old or you're 80. It's not too early and it's never too late. I want to share a vulnerable story with you as we close. When I was in college and shortly after, I was part of an ecumenical movement that quite honestly was like a little revival. It was like we had people coming to stay with us from different states and different countries because God's spirit was being poured out. And it was the closest thing to the book of Acts that I've ever experienced in my life. But we were young and didn't know really what we had. And through my network at the time, uh, just randomly, I actually had a connection with Erwin McManus and Mosaic Church out in L.A., uh, where Mosaic Music comes from. We actually sing some of their songs uh, here. And as I was heading out to Los Angeles to visit a friend, I tried to kind of like stack my trip, you know, and try to get a meeting with them because Mosaic was known for having sustainable influence in the arts and business and community in Los Angeles. And those were the same things that were on our heart in the community back in Minnesota. And they ended up connecting me with their executive pastor, and we went out to lunch at this Thai place right by the church. And I shared what God was doing back in Minnesota and how we were trying to look for ways to help steward the move forward but it kind of felt like we were getting stuck in operating the simple, you know, operating and simply facilitating community life on a daily basis. And I'll never forget what he did next. He opened his Bible and he turned to Matthew 28 and he passed it to me and he had me read the Great Commission out loud and asked me if the making disciples was our main focus. And I sat there for a moment in the, the restaurant just thinking about it, and I said, to be honest, I don't think so. I think it was when we were first started when it just kind of this move came out of a group of guys who were living in a men's house and, you know, trying to be disciples and, you know, be trained in the ways of Christ. And we've experienced the outpouring of God's spirit over the last couple of years, but we were more focused now on just maintaining this kind of elusive sense of unity, which 
if you've been in the church long enough, just means you don't confront things, right? He paused and he calmly said, well, you're off track. Your primary focus needs to be his primary focus. You need to get back to making disciples as your main focus and everything will fall into place. You know what happens when a train gets off its rails? It's not pretty. It's devastation. And you know what happens when we remove one or both of the rails of the train of the kingdom of God? It's devastation in your life. It's devastation in the church. And I think that's why we have so much hurt and broken relationships in our life and in the church is because sometimes we don't keep the main thing the main thing. As the great theologian Ron White of the Blue Collar Comedy Tour once said, you ever forget? Happened to me. So let me remind us, the two rails of the train of the kingdom of God are, that are constant in every season of your life are one that you would know that you're an entirely new creation empowered by grace to live as a beloved son or daughter of God. When he looks at you, he smiles. And number two, God is forming you into Christ through discipleship. I'm sad to say that that community had a, a bit of a derailing, but I hope it's for your benefit. We couldn't pivot fast enough back to making disciples as our main aim, but praise God who can redeem, right? Eventually, part of that community of believers did assemble and plant a thriving, growing church, and many others are actually now active contributing members in other churches. See, when we commit to a life of discipleship and being formed into Christ, we know that hard things come, but we know it all works out for the good, right? In Romans 8, Paul writes this. He says, As we, And we know that for those who love God, all things work out together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, what's his purpose? That we be formed into Christ. How do I know that? We read the next verse. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. I'll leave you with a quote from Diedrich Bonhoeffer who wrote the famous book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says this, and if we answer the call of discipleship, where will it lead us? What decisions, what partings will it demand? To answer this question, we shall have to go to him, for only he knows the answer. Only Jesus, who bids us to follow him, knows the journey's end. But we do know that it will be a road of boundless mercy. Discipleship means joy. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your disciples here. God, we are your beloved sons and daughters of God. We are your disciples. And I pray, Jesus, that we would take up your yoke when you said, come to me all you are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am lowly and gentle of heart. Father, let us 
Just be embraced in the delight of your smile as your beloved sons and daughters. And let us be empowered by your Holy Spirit to take active steps towards being conformed into the image of your Son. If you're here today and you have never heard the call of discipleship and want to become a disciple, I'm going to ask you to stand up. this is not to embarrass you. It's not to say, oh no, we thought he was this, but really is that. This is just to acknowledge before the Lord and before the community of believers that I'm in. I want to be a student. I want into the apprenticeship program of Jesus. School's in session. Amen. Amen, my brother. Amen. Anyone else want to get in this semester of enrollment as Jesus' apprentice? My brother, I'm going to ask you to, to come up. We want to pray for you. Let's give it up for this young man, huh? Alex, I'm going to ask you to pray for this young man. My brother, remind me of your name. Logan. Father, we thank you for Logan. We thank you for Logan and everyone who has decided to become a disciple, to follow you, to be apprenticed in the kingdom of God. Father, I pray that you would meet him at every corner, that you would teach him how to flow in the unforced rhythms of grace as he takes his yoke or your yoke upon himself. God, that he would be empowered to do the things you said to do without having to think about it and that he would find the shalom and the peace of God that you promised in Jesus' name. Amen. A great word as we are reminded how to stay focused this time of year. A lot of good things going on.